for our first message today. We have a split sermon from our pianist, Mr. Art Williams, entitled Reality Versus Hope. Mr. Williams. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon, everyone. One of the big challenges for Christians is reality versus hope. Hope, we could replace with the word faith and believing. Because it seems, actually, since the creation of man, man has been challenged, man has been tried and tested by those forces that are out to deceive. And how man stands up to that is really what this message is about. The challenges that reality place on us and how do we, through hope, sustain ourselves and not give up and turn away. We got instructions, right? And they were given to mankind, everything from food laws to governmental laws and instruction. And Man had challenges right from the get-go, trying to keep some of the most simple ones. And over time, would drift away from them, sometimes because of his own lust, sometimes because of temptations. But it was really the greatest challenges and the most important challenges came later when a young man born of a woman, came on the scene, and he was able to astound and startle the older instructors of the area with, the, with his knowledge, his wisdom, that he had as a child. Of course, I'm referring to Jesus. And he challenged them, not necessarily intentionally, but just by doing the activities that he was to do to establish himself and to, and to be a witness to people. In particular, not only his understanding of the scriptures, which was superior to anybody on earth, but also his ability to do miracles. The ability to do miracles convinced a lot of people as one of his main adversaries said, a man cannot do this unless it's of God. Readily admitting that he had to have God as his assistant, as, as his in, inside of him to be able to do this. But they still not would, would not accept it. But the people had hope. And the hope that the people had was one of the chief events or chief situations that motivated his enemies because they wanted the glory that they received from the people. They wanted that honor. They wanted that prestige. They wanted the people to look up to them. To them. And here was a threat. A man that could walk around and do miracles. Touch somebody or have somebody touch him and they would be healed if they believed. 
that was a tremendous threat to them. And even though they understood what he was doing was from a higher power, they wouldn't face the reality that they had to face. They wouldn't grasp the hope that was offered to them as so many other people did grasp that. And of course, there were others who saw the reality of it, but still didn't accept it, in particular, those who were healed that were the lepers. And they didn't even thank him for what he did. They experienced the reality of Jesus Christ right before them, and it never sunk in. And it goes on. The challenges were to get worse as time went on. It was Jesus' time to be sacrificed, to be on the stake. His disciples saw that. And there was the reality versus hope because he he told them just days before that he would die and that their joy and their sorrow would be turned into gladness. They didn't retain that at the moment of the time. And they still didn't get it when Mary came back from the sepulcher and told him he's not there. Somebody stole his body or they moved it. He's not there. And when they ran out there, of course, they didn't find it either. And later on, he appeared to them. And even Thomas, doubting Thomas, Still didn't want to believe until he actually put his whole hand in where the holes of the nails were at. Reality versus hope. What does it take to build your hope? What experiences? What education? What knowledge? Because things were to get worse. It was some 30 plus years later when the Roman government unleashed its persecution against Christians under the leadership of Nero in 64 AD after Rome burned and the Christians were blamed for it even though it's generally thought today that Nero himself started the fire as an excuse to be able to come up with this persecution. And so they initiated it in Rome through mutilation, burning at the stake, and in the arena, throwing people into wild animals. But the persecution wasn't limited just to Rome because we don't see a lot of it in the scriptures, but the towns in the outlining area would also persecute Christians in their own ways. And part of this persecution came about because they would not accept emperor worship. They were supposed to worship the emperor as if he was a god. They were also supposed to worship the gods of Rome because the gods of Rome 
were the ones that made Rome successful and powerful and why they had all the wealth that they had and all the success that they had in the battlefield. And so, the Christians were persecuted. And there were times when that persecution would let up and then a new emperor would come along and he would reinsert it. And the cycle went on all the way up through until Constantine came on the scene. And of course, he changed things, becoming a Christian himself, supposedly. There's a fly in the ointment with that because the scripture says no man that has the Holy Spirit of God can commit murder after Constantine claimed to be a Christian. He killed his former wife or his current wife, I forget which it was right now, and committed murder. That's an anomaly and it denies him as ever being a Christian. Our hope lies in the instruction that Jesus gave us. In the gospel. In those that followed him in their books that they wrote. All of the New Testament, Testament literature or instructions. And we can connect that to the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, where it talks about wisdom. In the book of Psalms, all of this goes to instruction. We're going to get into why, what is the purpose of, the, of instruction? Because it's multifaceted. There isn't just one single sole purpose for instruction. It's multifaceted. And it comes into play um, throughout the entire life. Well, let's just say from the time that Jesus came on the scene until this is all going to be wrapped up. Instruction helps us to conduct life in the way that Jesus wants it done here on earth. But it also is a platform for evaluation and testing that he uses to evaluate us. To what degree do we apply hope and faith in the light or in the confrontation of the reality of persecution. How do we handle it? How do we deal with it? And therein, this instruction places responsibility on the individual hearer. You heard the words, respond to them. You heard the words, respond to them. It's called responsibility. It's sometimes very difficult to respond properly, depending on what the nature of the challenge is. And we've all had our challenges. Probably none of us have had it as bad as they did back at the time of Jesus or at the time of Nero and those times. And we are... <clears throat> 
mouth is getting a little, a little dry. I had a, an episode this past week of dry mouth. And turned out I was low in sodium. Nobody gets low in sodium anymore, do they? You always have too much salt, right? Everybody has too much salt. They didn't have enough salt. <laughs> That's what always happens with me. I'm never, I'm never normal. I'm always the opposite side of the coin. It's my reality. It's my reality. But we are blessed in this age because of a, a promise and a prophecy that was made many, many thousands of years ago. And we find it all the way back in Genesis 48, verses 10 through 16. 48, 10 through 16. Think verse ten it says, Now the eyes of Israel, this is the man named Israel, his name was changed, were dim for age. Jacob was his name originally, were dim for age, so he could not see one of the challenges of reality of old age. And he brought them near unto him, and he blessed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. And lo, God has shown me also your seed. And Joseph brought them down from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel, left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. Israel stretched out his right hand, laid it upon Ephraim's head, and it was, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom your fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God who fed me all my life long unto this day, an angel who redeemed me from all evil, blessed the lads, and let my name be upon them, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Keep this in mind. His name was Israel. Children are being blessed. And his father, Abraham and Isaac. We're going to come back to Abraham with a little information later on. And when Joseph saw that his father had reversed his hands, we know, that, we know all about how he reversed his hands and, and they were straightened back out then. And his father, we're going jumping down to verse 19. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people and he shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than, than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Those are the blessings that we're under to this day. And it makes life here up to this point pretty much absent of any government persecution like the early Christians suffered in Rome. It doesn't always have to be that way, and it's not always going to be that way. There is a, <laughs> oh, I'm so forgetful today. I forgot my little article here that I wanted to uh, read to you. 
It was a statement made by the Pope recently, wherein he had a gathering that he was addressing, and there were no Jews there. But the statement he made was, for all the children of Abraham, and the only people that were there were Muslims, Catholics, and Christians. And it's interesting of the separate identification of Christians versus Catholic was also there. But he issued in 2019 the document of fraternity. And in that document, he says he's in favor. This document was criticized because, and I didn't read the document. I, did, I got it off the internet, but I didn't have a chance to read it. It's criticized because he says in there, I'm in favor of one world religion comprised of Catholics and Muslims. Again, Jews are left out, and that probably includes all Sabbath keepers. There's an interesting article, and I gave you a handout, because it gives a progression of what happens in the average, typical democracy. And this, this man, Andrew Teitler, had quite an insight on this. If we, I'm going to read what he said, and then we're going to take a look at that handout that you have. He says, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist until the time the voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. And from that moment on, the majority will vote for the candidate who can give them the most from the public treasury. The result will be that democracy will eventually collapse due to physical policy and will be followed by a dictatorship. He goes through the cycle, a sequence by which democracies generally will develop and then fade. He starts with, I'm going to read it first and then we're going to look at the chart. The words are a little bit different from what the chart says. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. Let me back up to that first point. From bondage to spiritual faith. The majority of those early pilgrims that came to this country came here because they were in bondage and they wanted to escape it. They were under religious persecution and that was the main reason. Why else would you hop on a ship they sail across an ocean, and you don't even know. Uh, just a few years earlier, they were saying the earth was flat and you'd fall off the edge. Why would you get on a ship, sail to a country where there isn't any civilization, where there are no homes built waiting for you, there's no food on a table waiting for you, 
You have to build your homes after you get there, and you've got to have your meals prepared for you while you're there. So that's like you leaving church today and say, I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to go out to the plains in western Oklahoma, and that's where I'm going to live. Oh, I don't have a house yet. Well, that's all right. I'll find something. I don't have food with me. Oh, that's all right. I'll find something. A lot of faith. That's a lot of hope. That's a lot of stress in reality to make you do that. You don't do that because things are good at home. So from bondage to spiritual faith, starting with the immigrants that formed this country, from spiritual faith to great courage. Wow, and they had that too, didn't they? Great courage to be able to come here not knowing what they were going to run into. And from courage to liberty. Yes, it took a revolution and hundreds of years to do it. Well, liberty was apprehended, if you can use that word. And from liberty to abundance, and from abundance to selfishness, and from selfishness to complacency, and from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. Now, the chart's a little bit different. I want to go through the chart because there's a, he, he made a statement on the chart here when, or, that is, uh, okay, where is it? No, maybe it's not on the chart. Okay. Under bondage, and he has it in the, in the, off to the side he has. I'm going to put my glasses on. I, I have my music glasses on right now. That's why I can't see. I've got to put my regular reading glasses on. Now, there, now I can see. Bondage. When you're under bondage, people oppose the conditions, and that's exactly what happened in Europe. But they couldn't manually or militarily fight it, so they fled. And, search, and searching for it, unity under faith. They have a deep moral gathering. And they fight for their freedom and prosperity. And freedom is achieved going around the, going around the graph, the diagram that you have going in the clockwise direction. And then it turns in our more modern day to the abundance of things, beginning with perhaps Mr. Ford's idea to make cars for everything, everyone off an assembly line and get them so low in price that anybody and everybody could buy them. The beginning of abundance. Abundance for everything. Selfishness is the next thing because it's all about my stuff and me. It's all about me and my stuff. You see that every day. You see it on television ads. You see it in just every place. And then it goes complacency because you have entitlement and self-absorption. Entitlement. Have you been watching any ads on television lately? Get what you deserve. Get what you're entitled to. You should have this now, and, and it, you deserve it. 
especially the ads that are associated with Medicare and the insurance policies, all the advantage insurance policies, with always being the center of attraction being some well-known personality, whether they're a sports figure or perhaps an actor or an actress. And so you go into entitlement. And what does entitlement breed? Next item on the chart. Personal responsibility is lost. It's not my fault. Watch some of the court programs and you just listen and hear all of the excuses that people have. I mean, it can be as, nose, as clear as your nose on your face that this person did this, the result was that, and there's, there's no other... But last week, you have to understand, last week my, my, my brother uh, was in the hospital. What's that got to do with you crashing into the guy's car five days later? And then you won't pay the guy for the damages. That's just one very easy uh, aspect of lack of responsibility. But that also is blatant. It's even blatant uh, up into the government issues, government places. Freedom, it will be centralized and independence controlled. Can anybody think of a good example of that right now facing us? Perhaps a mandate issued by the president, Biden? Every person will get a vaccination or you will lose your job. Controlled independence. One illustration of it. So from selfishness and abundance all the way up into apathy. We have the elements of all of them in our society today. The only question is how much more saturated must it become before we get the no point, the point of no return. The government achieves complete control, dependency, and you're under a dictatorship. And somewhere in the article, he takes it one step further. Because after a dictatorship comes a monarchy. And I don't think he understood exactly what he was saying when he said that. Because after man-made dictatorship comes, there's going to be a monarchy, a monarchy established by returning king of kings, and you're going to be with him and help govern that. And that's where our hope really lasts and comes to fruition. Having hope in the face of the realities and challenges of this life is a big challenge. I don't know that I'll turn to it, but in Psalm, I've referenced it several times, and I think others have too. In Psalm 27, 14, it says, Wait for the Lord. He will strengthen your heart. 
this, it's, a song, it's a song by David. He, says it, he repeats it and he says, Wait, I tell you, on the Lord. And indeed, it is true. And one of the, I think, my favorite scriptures, and I have many of them, is back in 1 Kings 3. And this is Solomon was taking charge in gover- in the, of the government. Verse 3, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in, his sta- in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And the Lord said, Ask, what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown unto my servant David, my father, great mercy, accordingly as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. And you have kept him for this, with this great kindness, for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of David, my father. And I am but a little child. I am but a little child. What did Jesus say about unless you become like a little child? I know not how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. Give, therefore, your servant an understanding heart to judge the people. One of the keys for negotiating the challenges of reality versus hope He's looking to God to strengthen your heart and praying and asking for an understanding heart so that you can judge the decisions that are before you, as Solomon says here, continuing in verse 9, that I may discern between good and bad. Discerning between good and bad and also having the strength to follow through on the decision. So you've got the strengthening of the heart for will and the knowledge and understanding for ability. Will and ability. I want to turn over and conclude in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 48, last chapter in the book. Talking about a certain city. A great city that's going to be established at the end. And these are the egresses of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. And go back into uh, Revelation. You can see what the names are. Three gates northward, one, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one of Judah, one of Levi on the east side. Uh, and it goes through all of those descriptions, and I'm going to hop on down to verse 35. 
after going through the north, south, east, and west sides of the gate. He gives a summary statement about the size of the city, 18,000 measures. And then this is my key point that I want to get to. In the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Unusual name, not something that we would name for a city, but it certainly is fitting, a fitting conclusion for the challenges between reality and hope. 